this morning will be in Galatians chapter 1. So let me encourage you to turn there in your Bible. Galatians chapter 1. A few years ago, I was playing in a softball league downriver, and uh, we were waiting for our game to start. And the team before us was having a few problems on the field. The, uh, the shortstop made a, a significant error that ended up costing his team a lot of runs. And when he came off the field, the coach, who was much older and probably uh, less able to play than the shortstop, uh, basically talked to him about it and said, listen, what's going on out there? You need to make that play. And he did it in a, I thought, a kind way. But the shortstop took offense to it and, and basically responded, why don't you try to do it yourself? Go out there and do it yourself. Well, this guy's much older. He could, probably couldn't have done it nearly as well as that shortstop did. But um, the conversation and confrontation went on and continued conflict going back and forth. And finally, the, the coach said, you know what? We don't need you to play today. You can, you can go home. And uh, we'll just put somebody else there. And so he told another guy to go to his spot. And when the next inning started, both guys went out to their spot at the shortstop. And this guy didn't want to leave. And so as he's barking back at the coach, he finally walks up the field and tells him how terrible of a coach he is and all this. And uh, finally he left. And, you know, when people don't agree over who the authority is, there's always going to be conflict. There's going to be chaos. Perhaps you've experienced this at work, that there's not a clear understanding of who the authority is. Maybe one of your bosses told you to do one thing and another boss told you to do a conflicting thing and now you have to make a choice and put yourself at odds with one boss or the other. When there's no clear understanding of who the authority is, then there is utter chaos. The same is true with the Gospel. If we don't see what the clear authority is when it comes to the gospel, then there's going to be chaos. If we're not willing to submit to what God has said is the truth about the gospel, then there's going to be conflict. There's going to be chaos when it comes to the gospel. And it's going to be seen even in churches. Paul is writing here in Galatians chapter 1 to the churches in the region of Galatia. Multiple churches believing communities there in the region of Galatia. And so I'm going to read verses 10 through 17, which will be the focus of our passage this focus of our study this morning. Let me begin reading in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 1. This is the word of God. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. 
But when God, who set, had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. As you have seen in this book so far, Paul is working to defend his gospel. That is, Paul's gospel is the true gospel. And what he's going to show today in these eight verses is that his gospel is the true gospel because it comes from God, not from men. Paul's gospel is the true gospel because it comes from God, not from men. Paul begins his letter in Galatians by stating the problem. In verse 6, he said that you are, you are starting to desert the gospel of Jesus Christ for another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. So he states the problem with these Galatian churches. And now he turns to defend. First he attacks the gospel that they've accepted, and now he turns and tries to defend the gospel that he has proclaimed. And uh, the, uh, the Judaizers, the, the antagonists here, the troublemakers that were apparently going around to these churches and telling them Paul's gospel is not really the true gospel because after all, it doesn't say anything about Jewish custom. How could it be the true gospel? And, and so Paul first says, as we saw last week, listen, if you abandon the gospel that you once received from the apostles, even if it comes from me or an angel or anyone, if you abandon it for another gospel, then you are to be accursed. You are to be eternally condemned. So he attacks their gospel. Then now he turns to defend the gospel that he has preached to them. And I want you to see the structure of this passage so that you can see where Paul is going with his argument. All right. So look at the first word in verse 10. That's the word for. And then verse 11, for... And then verse 13, 4. And that's basically Paul's three points. He's going to show that my gospel, the gospel that I gave you, is the true gospel for, and then he lays out his argument, verse 10, for, verses 11 and 12, and then for, verses 13 through 17. The first reason that Paul says his gospel is the true gospel is because, verse 10, it was rightly motivated. It was rightly motivated. So Paul's going to prove here in verse 10 that his gospel was not done out of wrong motives. Apparently this was the charge against him by these troublemakers. That Paul was doing this in order to inflate himself or to pursue something that he wanted. He was really, they were arguing, selling the gospel for a profit. Paul calls this peddling the gospel as he charges other people of doing, but but they were actually charging Paul of doing this. You're selling the gospel for a profit. Now, not a financial profit, you're going to see here in verse 10, but it's actually a, the profit has to do with the praise of people. So in other words, Paul was saying, here, I'll give you this weakened, watered-down gospel. In exchange, you praise me. Now, he wouldn't say it in those terms and and his accusers wouldn't say that he would say it that way. But that's basically the exchange that they're saying is going on. Notice verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? 
Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul's Gospel is the true Gospel because it's rightly motivated. So he he proves this point by starting with two hypothetical questions. Am I trying to please men or God? Am I trying to seek the favor of men or God? Or, or, Or am I, the second question, striving to please men? And he will admit, we'll get to verses 13 and 14, he's going to admit that he originally did try to please men. That is, before he came to Christ, when he was pursuing the, the praise of men, he was trying to move his way up in the Jewish system, the Jewish religious system. But he's saying, here's my point, that, that can't be the case now. Because, notice the end of the verse, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I'm not trying to please men with giving you this gospel that I've given to you. That's not the point of it. If I were, then I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. I wouldn't be a slave of Christ. What he's saying here at the end of verse 10 is that those two things are mutually exclusive. They don't work together. That is, you can either please men or you can serve Christ, but you can't do both. If I were doing, giving you this gospel in order to please men then I would not be serving Christ. And I think the proof of that is in the tone of the letter. Paul is saying, listen, if, if my goal were to try to please you, would I be so harsh with you? Did you forget what I just said in verses 8 and 9? Which was what? If anyone speaks to Another gospel teaches you another gospel other than the one that you ought to receive. Let him be accursed. You think I'm trying to please you by saying those harsh words? Okay, so so it's clear. And as you read through the rest of this letter, you're going to see there's some harsh words from Paul. I'm not trying to please you. That's not my ultimate goal. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because we could argue from 1 Corinthians 10, that Paul actually does live to please people because he says as much. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 31. Paul had been talking about, uh, in verse 23, how all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. That is, there's lots of things that I have the freedom to do as a Christian, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do them all. Um. He's only going to do the things that are are necessary for edification, for growth in Christ. And so if um, someone near me would have a problem with me eating meat, I'm not going to eat meat in front of them. Okay, Verse 31, So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. What's Paul saying here in verse 33? I please men. In other words, I live to please men. And so we could argue, Paul, why would you say to the Galatians that you're you're not pleasing men? Because in 1 Corinthians 10, you're saying you do please men. But his point, I hope you recognize in this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 
is not that he's going to please men at the expense of the gospel, but rather that as long as the gospel is upheld, then his goal is to please men. Okay, in other words, if we put this in, in tears as to what is most important, pleasing men would not supersede the truth of the gospel. What he's saying is as long as the truth of the gospel is established, and I'll do whatever it takes to please men. I'm going to try to live at peace with all men, he says in another place. His point in Galatians chapter 1, you can turn back there, is that my primary goal, this is what the accusers are saying of me. They're saying that, that my primary goal is to please men, and that's why my gospel has changed. Do you see how the tier structure has changed with what the accusers have said? They're saying Paul's primary goal is not the, the gospel, it's to please men. He's put that on top. And so that's why the gospel's all changed and different. It's missing all the Jewish customs. And Paul's saying, no. I don't live to please men. I live as a bondservant of Christ. I hold up as most dear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first reason that Paul says his gospel is the true gospel is because it was rightly motivated. It's done in order to please Christ. The second reason is found in verse, verses 11 and 12. Paul's gospel is the true gospel because it's from Christ. It's the true gospel because it's from Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He begins in verse 11 with an emphatic statement. He says, I would have you know. This is maybe similar to what Jesus would often say before He would give a parable or say something of critical importance. He would say, truly, truly, I say unto you. Or perhaps we would say it this way, listen up. What I'm about to tell you is very important. Okay, so Paul's saying that in verse 11. I would have you know. This is very important what I'm about to tell you. And he breaks it down in verses 11 and 12 into two categories. First, negatively. It's not from men. Verse 11 all the way to the middle of verse 12. And then secondly, my gospel was from Christ. Okay, So not from men, but from Christ. Notice in verse 11 he says, the gospel in the middle of the verse which was preached to you was not according to man. The New International Version has a good translation here. It says, not something that man made up. It's not something that I made up. Remember, what was there, what, were the, what were his accusers saying he made it up for? He made it up so that he could get the praise of the Galatians. Gather a bunch of followers. Paul says, no, it's not a gospel that I made up. They were saying, you know, Paul, it's clearly made up because there, you didn't mention anything about Old Testament ritual practices. You didn't mention anything about circumcision. So how could this be from God? It's all made up. And then he continues emphasize that point that it's not from man in verse 12. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. 
saying the gospel that I received was not a message that I heard from camp. It wasn't something that I read in a gospel tract. Okay, Now, I'm not trying to, to, to minimize those things because really every way in which we heard the gospel was, was similar to one of those ways. What Paul's saying is mine's much better than that. See, th- those ways are susceptible to error, aren't they? He already said that in verses 8 and 9. That if anyone speaks to you another gospel... The reason that we know Paul's is the true gospel is because it didn't come indirectly. You see? It didn't come from Christ through someone else to Paul. Paul's saying, no. It came to me directly. That way, since it comes directly from Christ, there can be no possibility of error in it. And so, I didn't receive it from men, he says. And then he says in the middle of verse 12, Neither was I taught it. I wasn't sitting in Jewish uh, religion classes, maybe some rabbinical school. No. I learned it from Christ. He's not trying to say that he learned nothing from humans, but, but his point is that the basic foundational elements that are necessary to the Gospel were learned from Christ. They didn't come from just some ordinary man, or he didn't make them up. They came from Christ. And he makes that statement positively at the end of verse 12. Neither was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, Galatians. The Gospel that I gave to you, the Gospel that you received from me, came to me directly by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, what is he talking about there? I'm sure you immediately went back to the Damascus Road. Paul's on his way to Damascus, getting ready to persecute the Christians, to put them in jail, and eventually to see them executed. He stopped in his tracks by a bright light. And Jesus says to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And, And it's at that point that Paul recognizes that this is the Messiah that he's talking to. Paul recounts this in chapter 22 of Acts and also 26, and he points back to that specific experience when God saved him, when Christ stopped him, when He bought him out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of God. Christ met him on the road. And this Gospel that he received, he's saying, is the one that I'm giving to you. Galatians. It's unadulterated. It's unchanged. It's from Christ alone. So my Gospel, Paul says, is the true Gospel because it's rightly motivated. It comes from Christ. And then verses 13-17. through 17, It's sourced in God. It's the true Gospel because it's sourced in God. And Paul makes this argument by first pointing back to his former way of life. In fact, that's exactly what he calls it there at the beginning of verse 13. He's saying, my former way of life didn't prepare me in any positive way to respond rightly to the Gospel. That's his first point in verses 13 and 14. So he begins, you have heard. In verse 11 he said, I would have you know. Here he says, you have heard. In other words, you know what I was like. You know 
how I used to persecute the church. First of all, he says, you know how it was steeped in Judaism. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was steeped in Judaism. I was, I was, the, the, I was at the pinnacle of what someone in the Jewish religion would be. I was a persecutor of the church. You want to see someone who's passionate about the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith? Look at me before I came to Christ. Not only did I agree with all these Christians being put out and being done away with in order to uphold the Jewish faith, but I was involved in it. I had my hand in it to the point where, notice at the end of of the verse, I tried to destroy it. The idea there is extermination. Completely put it out. So it never comes back. What's the best way to have that take place? Kill all the people who are following Christ. Kill all the people who are standing up on behalf of Christ. Put it out immediately. That was me. I was steeped in Judaism. I was involved in persecuting the church. And not only that, verse 14, or perhaps because of that, verse 14, I was advancing within the Jewish religion. Verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I would regularly get the Jew of the Month award. That was me. And I also won a reality TV show called The Next High Priest All-Star. That was me. See? I was at the top. I was moving my way up. And the reason for my advancement, he says in verse 14, is because I was ahead of all my contemporaries. Everybody else who was trying to move up, they didn't care as much about the book as I did. When he's talking about the book there, he means... Ancestral, he says, ancestral traditions. That's the the Mishnah, and uh, and the uh, Tosefta and the Talmud. These these uh, basically Jewish Bibles, we could say. And so, because I loved these ancestral traditions, because I loved the Jewish faith, I was advancing ahead of all of my contemporaries. No one could question my commitment to the Jewish religion because I was persecuting those who were trying to oppose us. So here's his point. Why lay out that history? Why talk about his former way of life? His point to the Galatians is this. It doesn't make sense that I would make up a gospel when I was clearly already receiving the praise of men as a Pharisee. I was successful at what I was doing. Why would I give all that up to get what I did get as a result of turning away from it? What was that? Now, he was the the recipient of persecution, right? He was seen as a betrayer. So now, all all of the persecution that was placed on the church was primarily focused at this one who used to be one of them. Why would I give all that up if I'm seeking the praise of men? I'm not. And that's why you know this gospel 
is the true gospel. And in fact, this is what really happened, he says in verses 15 through 17. You want to see what really happened? Then listen up. And the first thing that he and basically what happened here is that God turned Paul to faith in Jesus Christ and revealed to him the true gospel. Notice verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Paul's main point here is not to talk about his conversion. His main point is, and he does that in other places, so we can't minimize any of these things that he's saying, but his main point is, if you look at the main structure of the sentence, all of verse 15 and the first part of verse 16 are really subordinate to the main clause, and that's at the end of verse 16. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Okay, and that, that tells us what his point is, which I've been saying from the beginning. My gospel is the true gospel. And I didn't get it from someone else. He's going to explain that in more detail next week. I didn't go up to Jerusalem and learn it from them. I didn't even have much time with the apostles. I didn't have to have it verified by them. You know why? Because I got it directly from Christ. So, the Gospel came and changed me. And when it did change me, his point is, I didn't immediately go and try to get it validated. It came directly from God. I love how he starts verse 15. But when God... Yeah, you just picture Paul on this pathway of Judaism and Pharisaism being at the, the pinnacle, one of the best of the best. You see him down that pathway, but God. And that's the same thing that, that happened to us. Ephesians 2 has the same sort of contrast. We were enemies of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Then Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, who was rich in mercy, with His love, He, he took us out of that. He, he made us no longer enemies, but now His children. Great passage that shows the contrast of, of us before our salvation and us after, and the very work of God that grabbed us out of that. Paul now turns his attention to what God has done. That, that Paul's saying, I couldn't take credit for it. Why? Look at verse 15. Because he had set me apart even from my mother's womb. How could Paul take something, take credit for something that he had nothing to do with? While he's in his mother, even before he was in his mother's womb, God had already set him apart to be uh, a believer, yes, but I think it's more than that. We're going to see that it's probably speaking more to his apostleship, that he is an apostle set apart for God's purposes. And even before he was born or conceived, God had a purpose for him. And God called Paul, verse 15, at the end of the verse, says when he was pleased uh, and called me through his grace, when God chooses a person to be saved, then He also calls them. Listen to Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And those whom He predestined, just like Paul, before his mother's womb, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. The call that God is, uh, that Paul is talking about here is not a general call. That is, it's not a, a general offer of the Gospel that, hey, anybody who wants to come can come. This is speaking of a an effectual, what theologians call an effectual call. That is, it will happen. He will respond to the call. You see, you hear in the word effectual, effect, that God will effect a response in the call. That's the idea. All who have come to Christ have been chosen by God before the foundations of the world, but they've also been called by God, and that call was guaranteed to have a right response. And that's what happened here with Paul. And we know that Paul's talking about an effectual call because notice the phrase that he uses there. And he called me through His grace. As we've, I've mentioned before, grace is unmerited, unearned, and unwanted favor. Unmerited, unearned, and unwanted favor. And so, if... Paul is receiving merit that he hasn't earned or hasn't even wanted, then who can we attribute that grace to? We can only attribute it to God. So God's the one who effectually called him and said, Paul, it's time. You're going to respond to me now. And that's what he did with every single one of us. After God called Paul, after He chose him and called him, then He commissioned him in verse 16. The end of verse 15 says, He was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. And that's why I say this has to do with Paul's apostleship as well as his conversion. If Paul is not saving him, or God is not just saving him from something, his evil way of life, Judaism, but He's saving him to something. Specifically for you, Paul, I'm commissioning you to go to the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 2, he's going to say that God commissioned Peter to go to the Jews and He commissioned me to go to the Gentiles. God had a specific purpose for him. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, he recounts his conversion. I think he's talking to Agrippa here. And he says, uh, Jesus said to me, Get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who had been sanctified by faith in me. Paul saying, I was saved from the Jewish way of life, following after a false religion. But God didn't just save me from something. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 because He does the same with us. The very next book in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. He doesn't just save us from something. He also saves us to something. So if you think that the final thing that God wanted to do in your life was to save you, then you're wrong. God wanted to save you not just from hell, but He wants to save you to something. Notice chapter 2, verse 8. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When God saved you, He changed you. He changed you from a, an unmalleable stone to a piece of clay, but He's not finished with you when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's still molding and shaping you. Notice verse 10, it says, He saved you for good works. To do something. And that's what Paul's saying about himself in Galatians chapter 1. God saved me from hell, but He saved me to do something. Specifically for me to go to the Gentiles. And then at the end of verse 16, Galatians 1, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. We're going to spend a lot of time considering these these two phrases. He didn't go up to Jerusalem. We're going to see this next week. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to learn from Jerusalem as if it's the center of the Gospel. And in a sense it is. But I didn't learn it from there. I learned it from Christ. And I didn't even go to the apostles as if I needed validation because I received it directly from Christ. So Paul's point here is that the Gospel is a true Gospel because it's rightly motivated. It comes from Christ and it's sourced in God. And the Gospel, I hope you've noticed here in these last several verses, is not about Paul. Notice the language that Paul uses in verses 13 and 14. How I used to persecute and I was advancing. And I was becoming more extremely zealous. So he's talking about himself. Me, me, me before the Gospel. Then notice verses 15 through 17, or 15 to 16 primarily, where he talks about the Gospel. No I in there. But then God set me apart. God called me through His grace. God revealed His Son in me. You see? The Gospel is all about God. It's about Jesus Christ. And that's my first point of application for this morning. The Gospel is all about Jesus Christ. We didn't choose God. God chose us. We didn't choose God. God chose us. Before I loved Him, He loved me. Before I found Him, He found me. Before I sought Him, He sought for me. Consider yourself before you came to Christ. What were you like? The only thing that can account for such a radical transformation of what you were like before you came to Christ and what you are like now, the only thing that can account for it is the grace, the power of the Gospel that comes through Jesus Christ. Listen to Philip Ryken as he writes about the Gospel. He says, The Gospel doesn't tell us what we have to do in order to please God. No. It tells us that God is already pleased with us because of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Every false religion glorifies man. It focuses on 
some person or some teaching or some rituals that have to be performed in order to climb their way up to God. But the true Gospel is not like that at all. It gives all the glory to God. It doesn't teach us that we can reach heaven if we try hard enough. It teaches us that God has come down to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. The incarnation. Jesus becoming flesh. That's the Gospel. It's not that, that we just got to build up this bridge or like the people in Genesis chapter 11 try to build this building as if they are the centerpiece of the world. No. The Gospel is about God condescending to us. We had nothing to do with our own salvation. It was all of God. And so, number two, since the Gospel is about Jesus Christ, we must make sure that it's central to what we believe and teach at this church. Since the Gospel is about Jesus Christ, we must make sure that it's central to what we believe and teach. And that means we can't tailor the Gospel to fit the crowd. We have to make sure that our Gospel comes from Christ. We live in a market-driven society, don't we? And the temptation for us is to tailor the Gospel to to meet felt needs. Find out what it is that the people want. And and we'll try to satisfy those needs. We'll make the Gospel a little bit more palatable. We'll kind of minimize the judgment of God and your own sin. We'll minimize those and we'll highlight all the gifts of God. Look at verse 10 again. The end of the verse. If I were still trying to please men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If we're going to avoid living for the praise of people, then we have to live by the one true Gospel. We have to learn it and love it and live it. Because those who are trying to please men, Paul says, are not bondservants of Christ. Before we came to Christ, the Gospel was a great job, The Gospel for us, the good news for us was a high salary. It was a perfect spouse. A conflict-free life. A nice house. Public recognition. But when God saved us, we understood the Gospel. It's not about all those things. But it's about Jesus Christ and magnifying Him. God changed us. And He didn't just pluck us out of the fire of hell. But He also changed our desires to want to pursue the desires of Jesus Christ, which we could not do before we came to Christ. So if the Gospel is all about Jesus Christ, and it is, then we must make it the center, center of what we believe and teach. Number three, because the Gospel has power to change us, or to change any person, we must never give up on a believer. Imagine running into the, to Saul before he came to Christ. Imagine if you knew him. If you bumped, rubbed shoulders with him. How intimidating that must have been knowing that he hated Christians and yet God saved him. 
What that tells us is that no unbeliever's heart is too hard for God to transform. No unbeliever's heart is too hard for God to transform. There's no lost hope. There's always a chance for a person to respond to the Gospel when God does the work on their heart. So we have to continue praying because we don't know which people God will change. God will soften even the hardest of hearts. Because as Paul says, when God desires to reveal His Son in me, I couldn't resist it, was the idea there. I couldn't resist it. It it happened. And that's what's going to happen to that hardened family member, neighbor, co-worker who seems so resistant to the Gospel. When God chooses to reveal His Son in that person, and they'll come. And finally... We must understand from this passage that truth trumps passion. Truth trumps passion. What I mean by that is just because someone is passionate about something doesn't make what they're passionate about true. Right? Have you ever heard someone who is passionate about the tooth fairy or about global warming? Okay, just because a person is passionate about, about something doesn't make it true. How do we evaluate something? Not on how passionate a person is. Rather, on the content of the message. That's what we saw last week. Make sure that the content is right. Because when a teacher comes along and teaches us about something other than what we've received from the apostles, then we have to evaluate it based on the truth of Scripture. The truth will always trump the passion. Or at least it should. The gospel that we have received by way of the the apostles is the true gospel. And it must be understood, believed, loved, and lived. And when we understand it in that way, we can only attribute it to a work of God. And our response should be one of praise. Let's pray as we conclude. Father, we praise You for Your grace and salvation. Like Paul, we were advancing in perhaps many places in our life uh, not seeming to have any conflict. some cases, there were people at the end of their rope before they came to Christ. But ultimately, we can't attribute any of our salvation to ourselves. There's nothing we can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness, perfect sacrifice. It was complete. So, the fact that You chose us and effectually called us suggests that it's all of You. So we praise You for Your grace. And we ask for You to give us the wisdom and the boldness to stand up for the truth of the Gospel. We would not uh, be swayed by perhaps another teacher who is more passionate about a different gospel, but that we would recognize and constantly be searching the scriptures to make sure we understand it and recognize that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, but it's for us as believers as well. We need it. We need it to shape us. We need it to to change us. We need it. 
We need to reflect on it often so we know what we've been saved out of, what we deserve, and what other people are like apart from it. Help us. Give us the eyes to see. May we decide and continually follow to, to continually follow after you. May you strengthen our resolve to do more for our Savior who loves who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen.